Welcome to the podcast of Grace Community Bible Church. We hope and pray that you are blessed, challenged, and inspired by this message. For other sermons or more information, visit us at gracebiblechurch.org.au. Now imagine if you walked up to a beach. It's a beautiful beach. You know, nice clear sands. And you're looking around, you see this wonderful blue sea. And there's these big waves there. And then on the side, there's this big warning sign. And it says, high tide, heavy currents, do not swim. And there's even a red flag there just in case you, you, know, you were prone to miss that signage. Now what would come to your mind as you saw that warning sign there on that pristine beach? Would you be tempted to think, oh, th- this, is, this is so unfair. This is being harsh and cruel. I mean, would you think, okay, because it says high tide um, and don't swim because if you do, you will die, you know, is that going to cause you to think, well, that means I'm going to die right now? No, of course, you won't think any of those thoughts, at least I hope not. But you would be thinking, I'm so thankful for this warning. Because the warning helps me to know that I shouldn't be going into the sea at this time. And it's, this warning has now served to help my life be preserved. Now this morning we come to a, this section in Hebrews, which is one of the warning passages in the book of Hebrews. There's another four more uh, in this book. And particularly in the book of Hebrews, these, these warning passages can seem very scary at first when you read it. It almost you know, would seem like it's saying, oh, you can lose your salvation, that you're going to be eternally damned, especially even if you're a believer. And yet that's not the purpose of these warnings. These, these warnings are to actually help the believer. So that the believer will see that this is a warning, this is not the way in which you should go. And so in that sense, these warnings then serve to cause the individual believers then to persevere. And say, no, I, I don't want to be going in that direction, but I'm going to go in this direction. Because only true believers will actually heed the warning. And true believers will understand this is a means by which God is causing me to persevere and to move in this direction as opposed to go in that direction. Now the book of Hebrews, it's a letter that is written to Hebrew Christians, Jewish Christians as we have seen in the last couple of weeks. And these Jewish Christians, especially during this time, there was 
the threat of persecution. In fact, some persecution was already beginning to take place under the Roman Empire. Because this whole Christianity thing was a new thing that had happened. And so, on top of the threat of persecution, they were even ostracized from the society they were part of, the Jewish society that they were part of. Some even lost their inheritance and they were kicked out of their homes. And so because of the threat of persecution and because the Jewish religion or Judaism was not something that faced any persecution, these Jewish Christians were then lured into thinking of going back to their Jewish roots, to go back to Judaism. So on the one side, there's the pressure of persecution. On the other side, there's the ease of going back to Judaism because there's not going to be any pressures and everything seems to be going fine and well. And so the author of Hebrews therefore writes this letter to the Hebrews to encourage these Jewish Christians to say, hey, don't be swept away by this tide around you. But instead... Hold on to who Jesus is and his message of salvation. And so that's what he's trying to do here, even in this passage. And I trust that even as we look at this passage, as believers, we will be encouraged to continue to persevere on and trust in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, I've titled this morning's sermon as Cling to the Gospel of Jesus. And we're going to look at this section under three headings. Firstly, we look at the reliability of the Gospel. Secondly, we'll look at the consequence of neglecting the Gospel. And thirdly, we'll look at the danger of drifting from the Gospel. But in order to go through this message, what I've done is I've done something a little bit different in the way we will look at this passage. Rather than going from verses 4 to 1, we're going to go the other way, from 4 to 1. Because the emphasis or the, or the warning is in verse 1. So I want us to, you know, you know that, that warning to be front and center of our minds as we end this sermon. So, so the author of Hebrews is encouraging his readers why it is important, therefore, to cling to Jesus and the message of salvation or the gospel that he has brought. And in order to do that from this section, first he says that the gospel message is reliable. That this is the only message of salvation. And it is worthy for us to give our lives to this gospel message and why we should trust this gospel message with our whole lives. And here's what he says to support that claim. Look at the middle of verse 3. He says, It was declared at first by the Lord. What is the it 
referring to. Just look at the phrase before that, talking about such a great salvation. So it is talking about the great salvation or the gospel message. He's saying the gospel was declared at first by the Lord Jesus. Now this doesn't mean that the gospel was only proclaimed by Jesus. See, the good news of God's salvation was preached right from the beginning in the garden. When God said that he would send the seed of the woman to crush the head of the serpent and reverse the curse of sin and death. So right from there and over the centuries, there would be more and more revelation given about the message of salvation. But this message of salvation, this revelation, was an incomplete revelation during Old Testament times. There were things about the message of salvation that couldn't be fully understood. But now in these last days, Jesus has declared the gospel of salvation in the fullest sense. All the previous revelations about the gospel have now culminated in the person of Jesus Christ. And when you think of Jesus and how he declared it, when he was on earth, he called people to repent and to believe in him, that he was going to die and he was going to rise from the dead and that he was going to establish God's kingdom. And then when Jesus actually died on the cross, and when Jesus actually rose from the dead, and he actually ascended to the right hand of God, the gospel news became even more clear. It became clear that this salvation is available only through Jesus Christ. That death had been conquered because Jesus rose from the dead. Death had no no longer any power. That there is cleansing from sin for all who trust in Jesus because Jesus died in the place of sinners. And that Jesus will return once again to establish God's kingdom on earth, a kingdom that is so different from this sin-cursed world that we see now. And all those who trust in Jesus will be part of this wonderful kingdom of God. And so in this way, the message of the gospel was fully and finally and authoritatively declared by the Lord Jesus first in a way no one else had previously. But notice Jesus is actually referred to here as the Lord. Notice again it says, it was declared at first by the Lord. Meaning this full declaration of the gospel was ma made not by just a mere man or some angelic being or some being that may be on the same level as an angel, but it was the Lord himself who came down in the flesh in the person of Jesus Christ. Now how does this Make the gospel message reliable? Well, just think about it. 
let's say you, you went to the hospital. You want to make sure that the person that you are speaking to is actually a doctor. That this person has all the credentials and all the trainings that, that actually make this person a doctor in the specialized field that you're seeing this person for. Why? So that you can be sure that whatever information then this doctor gives you, you're getting it from the person who is credible and you can trust this person. And so here the author is saying, in these last days, the message of salvation is finally and fully declared by Jesus, who is the Lord himself. Jesus is not a mere man or someone like an angel. He is God the Son who has come down in the form of a man to declare this salvation directly. And if Jesus himself, in the, if the Lord himself has come down to this world to declare this message, we can say there's nothing more reliable or more authoritative in this world than this particular gospel message. And so we would all do well to hold on to this gospel message. But now, in case people were tempted to think, okay, I understand that Jesus, who is God incarnate, that he is God incarnate, and he's the one who's declared this message of salvation. But Jesus is not here anymore to testify to us, to verify this claim. So how can I know that this message is true then? Well, the author adds to this argument and look at, uh, again, the last part of verse 3. He says, and it, again referring to the gospel message, was attested to us by those who heard. Meaning the gospel declared by Jesus Christ was verified or attested to us by other eyewitnesses. Those who were physically present with Jesus and directly heard from Jesus and witnessed all that Jesus did. These were people who walked and talked with Jesus and so this would be the apostles as, as well as all the other early disciples. So what the author is telling his readers is that even though you are not eyewitnesses of Jesus, you can still be confident in the message of the gospel because it is verified to us by men who actually directly heard from Jesus. You know, when you think of the apostles particularly, the primary eyewitnesses of Jesus' ministry, I mean, they were fallible, weak men, weren't they? And when you think about it, all of them fled because they're fearful for their lives during the time of Jesus' crucifixion. And yet it was these very same disciples who then became emboldened to preach the gospel even when they knew they would be killed for it. See, if who Jesus is was a lie, if Jesus really wasn't the Son of God, if he really didn't rise from the dead and go back to heaven, 
then these weak, fearful apostles would never have given their lives to the spread of the gospel. In fact, history tells us that aside from the Apostle John, every other apostle was killed for their faith in the Lord Jesus. They would not have done that if the whole thing was a lie. And that's not all. It's not just the witnesses, the human eyewitnesses. Simultaneously, at the same time, God also attested to the truth of the gospel. And there are two ways in which God did this. Look at verse 4. It says, While God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles. So that's the first way in which God bore testimony to the truthfulness of the gospel. Through signs and wonders and various miracles. Now when you think of signs, wonders and various miracles, they, they weren't common things. Everyday things that happened. In fact, when miracles did occur, they served as signs pointing to a new stage in God's dealings with his people. In fact, if you look at the entire redemptive history, which covers now roughly 6,000 years, there are only three brief time periods when miracles were common. The first time period was during the time of Moses and Joshua. There was nothing from Adam all the way through Moses. But during the time of Moses and Joshua, this was the time when God would rescue his people from Egypt and make a covenant with them called as the Mosaic Covenant or the Old Covenant. And then God would bring these people back to the land of Canaan to establish them as his people. So the miracles during this time were pointing to this new thing that God was doing in establishing his people and then ultimately bringing them to the land uh, during the time of Moses and Joshua. Then there's no miracles again until you come to the time of Elijah and Elisha. And this is the second time period where miracles were common. And this, is, this was a time when Israel got divided into two kingdoms. And the people of Israel and the kings of Israel were turning away from God. So God raised up prophets like Elijah and Elisha to call the people to repent and turn to the Lord. And this paved the way for other prophets similarly to follow in their line but Israel would not repent and they would be taken into exile from, away from the land of Canaan. So the miracles during Elijah and Elisha served again as signs pointing to this new stage in redemptive history where God would discipline his people out from the land because they would not repent of their ways. And then again, no miracles for another fair few years until you come to the time of Jesus and the apostles. This is the third time period when miracles are common. When you think of Jesus, Jesus during his ministry on earth, he went about doing many signs and wonders and miracles. 
In fact, Peter himself, when he starts preaching about Jesus, in the book of Acts, he says this in Acts 2, verse 22. He says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. So these miraculous signs and Miraculous signs were pointing to the fact that the Messiah had come now to save his people and he was going to establish a new covenant and he was going to ultimately establish his kingdom. So God the Father, has, has, as he has done in different stages of redemptive history, has worked miraculous signs and wonders and now during the time of Jesus, he does the same as well. And so... This in itself was a further validation of the gospel message of Jesus. That this is something that God is doing. This is a message that God is bringing through Jesus. But it's not just God the Father. God the Holy Spirit, the third person of the triune God, also attested to the reliability of the gospel message. Look at the last part of verse 4. And by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. Now the word translated here for gifts, it's actually the word that's, that means divisions or distributions. So more literally, it, it, it's saying the, the distributions of the Holy Spirit. Meaning this is referring to particular distributions of the Holy Spirit manifestations or particular gifts of the Holy Spirit that were given to attest to the gospel message. And you say, what are these particular gifts? Well, they're the miraculous sign gifts again. See, when Jesus ascended to heaven, the apostles and some of the early disciples were given these miraculous sign gifts. Listen to what Paul, who's an apostle, says of himself in 2 Corinthians 12, 12. He says, The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, talking about himself, with what? With signs and wonders and mighty works or, or miracles. And because these apostles were given these miraculous sign gifts, when we look into the, particularly in the book of Acts, you see that the apostles could heal the lame. They could heal many kinds of sicknesses. They could even raise the dead. In fact, in Acts 19 and verse 12, we read that even handkerchiefs and aprons that were touched by the Apostle Paul would be carried to the sick and they would be healed. So they had the miraculous sign gifts. But it wasn't just the apostles. There were also others closely connected with the apostles, like Stephen, it says in Acts 6.8, where it says that Stephen also was doing signs and wonders among the people. Another close associate of the apostles was a person named Philip. And we read that in Acts 8.6 that he was also doing signs as well. So these particular miraculous sign gifts were given by the Holy Spirit 
to authenticate to, or to attest to the authenticity of the gospel message, to the validity of the gospel message. You know, when we look around the church these days, we don't see people with the, some of these miraculous sign gifts. For example, the gift of healing, like how the Bible describes it during that time period. Now, this doesn't mean that God can't miraculously heal someone if he wanted to today, but it just means that the gift of healing given to a particular person is not as evident today because it served a particular purpose of attesting to the gospel. So the author is saying this. The gospel message has been validated by the triune God. Jesus, who is God the Son, has declared this message. God the Father has validated Jesus and His message through signs and wonders and miracles like He has done in other particular periods of redemptive history. God the Holy Spirit has also distributed particular sign gifts to the disciples to further validate the message of Jesus and His gospel. And then on top of that, there were even human eyewitnesses, including the apostles who initially seemed so fearful and ran away because of persecution during the time of crucifixion, attested to the validity of Jesus and his message, and they gave their lives for it. And so what that means is that the gospel of Jesus is not some kind of human speculation where somebody just made it up. It's not fiction, but it is a historical fact that has been validated in so many ways. And because it has been so validated, there's nothing that is more reliable in this world than the gospel of Christ. Friend, if you're sitting here this morning and you're not a Christian, I would ask you to sincerely just consider the validity and the truthfulness of the gospel message. Because really nothing else is as valid as this message. And for those of us who are Christians, in light of what we read here, let us never doubt the truthfulness of the gospel message, but have full confidence in it and give our lives to it. So that's the first thing that the author says, or at least in the order I'm going. The reason why you should cling to the gospel of Jesus is because, first of all, it is a very reliable message, and it is true. But here's the other thing. Because the gospel is reliable and true, we should not neglect this message. And this brings us to our second point, that is the consequence of neglecting the gospel. And this we see in verse 2 and the first part of verse 3. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation. 
What is the message declared by the angels? What is this referring to? Well, this is referring to the old covenant, or sometimes we call it as the uh, Old Testament law that's given by the angels at Mount Sinai. You might be thinking, but I don't remember reading anything about angels at Mount Sinai in the book of Exodus. And you would be right to think that, yes, you, there's no mention of angels at Mount Sinai in the book of Exodus. But if you turn to Deuteronomy 33 and verse 2, Moses himself, who is the author of Deuteronomy, implies that there were angels with God at Mount Sinai. Now, there's an implication there, but it becomes more clear as we turn to the New Testament. And this is Stephen in his speech. He says in Acts 7 and verse 53, where he says that the law was delivered by the angels. And then again, similarly, Paul in the book of Galatians, in Galatians 3.19 says that the law was put in place through angels by an intermediary. So the old covenant message that the angels declared, the author's point is it proved to be reliable. That it was true and valid and binding. So true was it, so valid and binding was it, that every transgression and disobedience of this Old Testament law received a just retribution. That God brought just punishment for every sin under this covenant. Now for the less grievous sins, there was some sort of restitution that the individual had to make. But for grievous sins, some were stoned. Others were swallowed by the earth. Still others were bitten by snakes. And then the disobedience of the people culminated in God sending them into exile, as we all know. But in all of this, God was never unfair. His punishments were all just. The punishment fit the crime. It was never out of proportion to the crime that was committed. Now this is how God operated under the old covenant and the message under the message that was declared by the angels. Now you know sometimes people have the mistaken notion that, you know, oh, God just seems more harsh in the Old Testament. But when you come to the New Testament times, God seems to have kind of lightened up a bit. He's sort of eased up a bit and he's less harsh and, uh, and more gracious. But that's not what the author of Hebrews says in verses 2 and the first part of verse 3. He's making actually an argument from the lesser to the greater. He's saying if failure to listen to the first word brought about just punishment, how much greater will be the punishment for those who don't listen to the final word brought by the Son? 
think, I want you to just think about what the author is saying here. The Old Covenant, it was legally binding during Old Testament times. But the, the message that came in and through the Old Covenant, it was a message that was partial and incomplete. And this was a message that was never meant to save people. But it was a message that was anticipating the saving work that was coming. In fact, the types and the shadows, whether it's the sacrifices or the priesthood and all the other things within this old covenant were pointing to the saving work of the Messiah. The law found its fulfillment ultimately in Christ. And so this incomplete or partial message that came through the Old Testament message delivered by the angels, even though it was partial, it was binding. So much so that anyone who disregarded this old covenant and its stipulations, they were given a just punishment. But now... The complete, the final revelation of God's message of salvation has been declared through the Son, Jesus Christ. And there's no doubt about whether this final message is true or valid because it is the Lord Himself who has come in the person of Jesus Christ. And it's a message that has been validated in many other ways. And if this full, complete, final revelation of God's message has come through the Son, then how much more severe will be the punishment if we don't listen to this gospel message that has been declared by the Son? That's what the author is saying. And that's why it says in verse 3, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation. This is such a great salvation because this is God's final word. And it's a complete revelation here. You can know that because of Jesus and His work on the cross, that you can be freely forgiven of your sins. That you can be freely cleansed from every stain of guilt and shame. And you can be made right with God once and for all because of what Jesus has brought about. You can even have the privilege of being part of God's kingdom where everything will be made new. That's why all of this has been made clear through Jesus coming and doing what he has done. And so then the author says, how then shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? How shall we escape? Escape from what? Escape from the coming judgment of God. See, but I want you to understand this judgment of God is, is not like simply exiling you out of the land. It's not just physical death. Oh, no, no, no. This is a much greater judgment. This is the judgment of God that will be eternal and full and never-ending. 
No one will be able to wiggle their way out of this eternal full judgment if they reject this great and full salvation brought about by Jesus Christ. There is no escape whatsoever. Because there is no other salvation apart from this great salvation in Jesus Christ. Now friend, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, I want to tell you this is the good news of the gospel. See, the reality is that all of us have sinned and rebelled against God. And because of that, we all deserve to be punished. Say, why? Because this is God's world and we are His creatures. And God being holy and righteous, He cannot tolerate sin in His presence. So God is just to condemn those who have rebelled against Him. But God in His love and mercy, has also sent His Son to take the form of a man, Jesus Christ, who came into this world and lived a perfectly righteous life. And then He died on the cross. Why did He die on the cross? Because He, on the cross, He was bearing the wrath of God. Because He sinned? No, he, he lived a perfect life. Jesus died on the cross bearing the wrath of God, not for his sins, but for the sin of people like you and me. He took the place, Jesus took the place of the sinner, and he bore the wrath of God in their place, in the sinner's place, and he died. And then on the third day, he rose from the dead, so that all who would trust in Jesus and His work on the cross would be saved. See, this is the great salvation we talk about as Christians, the gospel message. This great salvation is the reason why we gather here week after week as Christians. And this is the reason why then we give praise to this God and Savior and Lord as we come together as Christians. Friend, if you're not a Christian here today, I would ask you to consider this great salvation that God has brought about in His love and mercy in and through Jesus Christ. But I also want you to consider the reality on the other side of the coming eternal judgment if you reject the salvation in Christ. As one theologian stated, quote, the killing of the body will be not as nothing compared to the everlasting punishment of body and soul in hell. That is the coming full, eternal judgment. God is just and therefore He has to punish sin. 
but he's also merciful and gracious. So he has sent his son to die in the place of sinners. Friend, you cannot save yourself. There is no other way in which you can be saved from God's coming judgment other than through salvation in Jesus Christ. If you want to talk more on what it means to follow Jesus and to trust in Him and the salvation that Jesus has brought about, please come and talk to me. I'll be standing right there at the door at the end of the service or you can talk to a friend perhaps or somebody sitting next to you who you know is a Christian and they'll be happy to explain to you this further who Jesus is and this message of salvation. So the author first says the gospel, why we should cling to the gospel of Jesus. One, because it's reliable, but because it's reliable, you should not neglect the gospel. And the consequence of neglecting the gospel is eternal damnation that's coming. And so here, now we come to then the, the main emphasis in this passage. There's then this danger of drifting from the gospel for those of us who are Christians. And that we see in verse 1. He says, therefore, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. Therefore, in light of everything that we've seen in chapter 1, in light of the fact that God has spoken His final word in His Son, this Son that is so unique and even greater than the angels, Therefore, in light of this, we must pay close attention to what we have heard. The idea of paying close attention here, it doesn't just mean, oh, oh just, just hear this message carefully. It has the idea more so of, of, of listening or heeding to what you have heard where you actually hear it and not just let it go out of the ear, but it impacts your life and affects the way you live and the direction of your life. You could put it another way. The, the, what the author is saying is, anchor your whole life onto this gospel message of Jesus and who He is. Why? Because if you don't anchor yourself to Jesus and His gospel message, you will drift from it. Now the idea of drifting here is, if you think of a boat that's not necessarily tethered to the shore or uh, the bank with some rope. And it's just sitting there and there are people inside. And then because of the currents and the waves of the sea, of the ocean, this boat will slowly, bit by bit, drift away until it's totally lost at sea. It's that sort of idea. Where this drifting is, it's a very subtle process. It doesn't happen just like that in a moment. But it happens bit by bit, step by step. But before long, you have drifted away from the gospel. 
So what the author is saying is, if your life then is not anchored on Jesus, if your life is not anchored on the gospel, the current of this world, whether it's the persecutions and the pressures that are coming, or the attractions of this world that are coming, Whatever the tide of the world is that you're in, it will sweep you away if you're not anchored to the gospel. And what's the problem if you start drifting from the gospel? Well, that's what then verse 2 says. Because if you start drifting away from the gospel bit by bit by bit, where do you end up? To the place where you will completely neglect the gospel. And if you neglect the gospel completely, what's going to save you from the coming judgment? Nothing. That's the author's point. So that's what's at stake. Eternity is at stake. Now, what are some signs that someone may be drifting from the gospel? Well, we read from Mark chapter 4 this morning. I want us to turn back there. One way in which we can tell we may be drifting if we are fixated on gaining earthly riches. That's what we are fixated on. That's what we are anchored on. You know, where someone's thinking, instead of being tethered to Jesus Christ and his gospel, I've got something else here. That's to make more money. That's going to be my security and my anchor. Oh, it's, it's power, it's fame to prove myself to everybody around. And where that then is what you are anchored onto instead of Jesus and his gospel. Listen to what. This is the person who says he, you know, invariably starts drifting and instead of the gospel the riches and power and fame and everything else has become his substitute. Listen to what it says in Mark 4, 18 and 19. Because if the person keeps drifting like this away from the gospel toward the riches and the fame and everything else of this world, where the gospel is not primary and you're not anchored onto it your whole life, listen to what will happen ultimately. Verses 18 and 19. And others are the ones sown among thorns. These are the ones who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires of other things enter in and choke the word and it proves un... See what happens there? Initially they seem like things are okay, but the riches and everything else in the world starts pulling them and if they're not careful, they keep going and they keep going and they keep going and ultimately there's nothing there. It proves that the word was unfruitful in their lives. 
Another way in which, another sign that we may be drifting from the world is when the systems of the world or the thinking of the world seems more important to us than staying with Christ. Listen to Mark 4. Listen to people who are like this. If they keep going down that path. When they're so concerned by what the world is thinking and the pressures that the world is bringing. Instead of hanging on to Jesus, they're continuing to move in that direction. Listen to what happens to them. Verses 16 and 17. And these are the ones sown on rocky sound, uh, rocky ground. The ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. So initially in their life, there seems to be joy and they seem to call themselves Christians and whatnot. But they have no root in themselves. They endure for a while. So for a time, they seem like everything is good and they seem like Christians. But then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. So, you know, some kind of ideologies from the world. You know, perhaps it's the thing about gender or, or something else about marriage or some other sin issue that the world may be celebrating. And there's constant pressure that if you don't accept it, then you're going to be ostracized, you're going to be persecuted. And if you find yourself slowly caving into the world's opinions and ideas, then you're beginning to drift from the gospel. But it's not just persecutions and things like that. I would even say even the trials of this life. You know, sometimes it's, it's something tragic might happen in that person's life. So for a while, this person seemed to have joy and seemed to live as a Christian, but some big tragedy has happened in their life. And rather than running back to Jesus and holding on to him and the good news of Jesus, it's this trial now, along with everything else the world has to say, drags them away. And they keep going and they keep going. Finally, they come to a point where they reject Christ. Other times it's, you know, certain philosophical ideas of the world. And they question then the word of God. Or the world says this. You know, the world says, oh, everything happened by evolution. But the Bible says, no, God created it. And he created it in seven days. And there's now a struggle. And then because of that, rather than clinging on to Christ and his word, they start bit by bit with the doubts and everything else going the way of the world. Issues like suffering in this life, the problem of evil, the problem of pain, or other struggles, you know, things that people generally struggle with, including Christians. 
If they're not careful, they become so fixated on it and they go by the world's philosophies and ideas rather than coming back to the Word of God and who Christ is and His gospel message. By the way, I just want to say, friend, brother, sister, if you're struggling with some of these you know, theological issues or philosophical ideas, I want to encourage you to speak to other brothers and sisters here, you know, other mature brothers and sisters who can help you, but don't keep going down that path where you're being led astray and going more away from the gospel of Jesus Christ. Another, another way to, or another sign that you are drifting from the gospel is when we minimize the seriousness of sin. Where this person, as they see sin in their life, they start downplaying it and they start minimizing it and ignoring it to the point where they're becoming more and more desensitized to it. Listen to what... Romans 8 and verse 13 says, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Oh no, we aren't supposed to minimize and coddle sin and be desensitized to our sin. In fact, we should put to death sin that we see in our lives. Now I'm sure some of you might be thinking here as you're listening to this. Wait, hang on a second. So does that mean we can lose our salvation? Is that what the author of Hebrews is saying? No, that's not what he's saying. Remember, salvation is all of God. It is by His grace alone, in Christ alone, through faith alone. It is never by human work. So if salvation is all of God from start to finish, then we cannot lose it because we didn't do anything to, to contribute to this salvation. But what it does mean is that if a person claims to be a Christian and they start drifting according to the tide of the world, away from the gospel of Christ, and they start drifting this way, and they do nothing about it, and they keep going that way, and they keep going that way, they keep going that way, to the point where they're so hardened, they neglect the gospel entirely, then that proves that they were never a Christian in the first place. They were never a believer in the first place. But for those of us who are believers, when there's a warning given like this, because we believe God's word is true, what are we going to do? Ignore it? No. We're actually going to listen to the warning. Say, oh, that's a dangerous path that I'm on. I'm not going to go that way. And so then God's word through, through means a warning, it becomes the means by which he preserves us in this world by his word. You see that? 
So it doesn't mean that those who are believers will lose their salvation. This warning then will be something that every believer, as they listen to it, will be like, that's God's word. I'm finding myself slowly drifting this way, away from the gospel. I shouldn't be doing that. And you will come back. That is proof that you actually are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and you believe his word. So in closing, how do we prevent this drifting from the gospel? Well, I would just say this. As we've emphasized so many times from this pulpit, spend time in God's word. Fill your mind with the truth of God's word against the deceitfulness of your own heart and the deceitfulness of this world and the lies of this world. And then spend time communing, communing with God in prayer and seeking out God and asking Him for help and, and confessing sin and again refreshing the gospel of Jesus Christ in your heart. But that's not all. There's a third factor as well than the fellowship of the saints. Do not neglect the gathering of the saints as we hear the word of God being preached, as we minister to one another, as we share our lives with one another, and as we minister God's word to one another and pray for one another and encourage one another. I want to ask you this even as a challenge. How many of you here actually share your lives with others in this church? where they can call you out when they see you drifting, where they can pray for you when you're struggling, where they can encourage you when you're down rather than being sucked into the world's ideologies and going away from the gospel. Brother, sister, I just want to encourage you then to build a few good relationships with one another for this purpose because it is another means by which God will keep you on the straight and narrow, keep you anchored on the cross of Jesus and to help you persevere in this world. But ultimately, I just want to say this as we close. The reason why any believer will persevere is because God is holding them and working in their lives. Through the, through the fellowship of the saints, through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, even as we hear God's word, whether it's encouragement, whether it's warning, whether it's um, something about the glory of who God is, that then becomes the means by which God holds us and preserves us and keeps us to the end. So as we close, if you're a believer, I want, I want to say to you, Jesus will not ever neglect his own. He, was, he will preserve us to the end. So therefore, take heart. Hear the warning and pay attention to not drift from the gospel, and you will indeed if you truly believe him. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the great salvation that has come in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Thank you that you have been so gracious to reveal this great salvation and full salvation to us. Forgive us, Father, for our weak faith and our proneness to drift and wander, to rely on other things as though they are our little mini saviors, when nothing in this world will ever save us. Thank you for the work that you're doing in and through your people, through the fellowship of the gathering here. Thank you that the work that you do through, the, through your word as you exhort us and rebuke us and encourage us and even warn us so that as your children, it becomes the means by which you cause us to persevere in this world. For all this, we give you thanks and help us to continue to cling on to the gospel of Jesus Christ, knowing that he will never let us go. And we give you thanks in and through the precious name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.